From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Welcome to Washington Watch, friends. My name is Joseph Backholm. I'm a senior fellow here at Family Research Council, and it is my pleasure to be sitting in for Tony today. My first time in 2021, or 2022, excuse me. I haven't quite remembered the year, have I? But a great day to be with you all. A lot to talk about as we wrap up the week, as we begin our year today on the program. Before we get there, I want to remind you, that the website is TonyPerkins.com. You can find this and every show there. What we're going to talk about today, a story from Europe with a very American theme. The European Court of Human Rights declined to tell a baker he has to bake a cake that says support gay marriage. Sound familiar? We'll talk about it. Some Democrats running for Congress are refusing to answer questions about whether they support Build Back Better. What does this mean for the president's legislative priorities? At the end of the program, vaccine mandates, mask mandates, baking cakes for gay wedding mandates. Do Christians always have to obey the law? And if not, why not? That's the conversation we're going to have in our worldview segment with David Clausen, who's the director of our Center for Biblical Worldview, at the end of the program. So stay tuned for that. But the top story for today, a big case was heard at the Supreme Court. Our nation's businesses have distributed and administered hundreds of millions of COVID vaccines to Americans. Businesses have encouraged and incentivized their employees to get vaccines. But a single federal agency tasked with occupational standards cannot commandeer businesses economy-wide into becoming de facto public health agencies. That was attorney Scott Keller representing the National Federation of Independent Business during oral arguments earlier today before the United States Supreme Court over the federal shots or test requirement for large businesses. Arguments for that case and the case of the Biden administration's vaccine mandate for workers at federally funded healthcare facilities wrapped up after nearly four hours today. And with me now to talk about today's argument is Louisiana Attorney General Jeff Landry, who led the lawsuit that was joined by 13 other states asking the courts to block the mandate for healthcare workers. His Solicitor General, Liz Merle, led the argument on the healthcare workers case. General Landry, welcome back to the program. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me this evening. Well, we are glad to have you and, and thankful for your leadership on this issue. Now, a long oral argument today at the Supreme Court. How would you summarize the argument you were trying to make for the court on behalf of Louisiana? Well, I think uh, both of the cases are summed up best by the question of, can the federal government reach down into American citizens and force them to engage in a medical procedure and basically coerce those citizens with their livelihoods? And so that's a question that's before the court, I believe, in both the OSHA and the CMS mandate, because both of these cases involve the federal government forcing vaccine mandates on American workers. And we believe that the answer to that is no, because if the answer to that is yes, then the question is begged as to what is the limit of the federal government 
today. Specifically, and I want to get into some of those arguments and the implications of this, but what were you asking the court to do? We were asking the court to, in, in the CMS case to uphold the current stay or the pause that the Fifth Circuit had granted in the CMS rules. So basically the Fifth Circuit had said no, look, well, actually a district court and the Fifth Circuit upheld uh, the, uh, the, the district court's pause or basically what we call a stay in the implementation of the CMS rule, which would have mandated vaccines on health workers. In the OSHA case, we were asking the court to overturn the dissolution of a stay where the Sixth Circuit had dissolved the Fifth Circuit's stay or pause. And so both cases, we were asking the court to either allow the stay or the pause or to basically reverse and implement a pause. We do not want these rules to be implemented while we litigate this case. Now, this case got to the Supreme Court much more quickly than a case typically does. It didn't take the years to get there. And of course, the situation is unique. Was it significant to you that the court even agreed to hear the case at all? Absolutely. It was significant. It's not only significant, but it hadn't been done. The court did not take this step in probably about 50 years. I think the last time that the court had oral arguments on a stay motion was like in 1970. And I think that speaks to the gravity of this situation. And I believe the justices understood that. We saw that. We spent four hours inside the halls of the Supreme Court being peppered by the justices. And all of them asked pretty good questions. Yeah. What was your sense after the arguments were done? You know, I think that the justices understood the issues that were before them. I I don't know that they all agree on those particular issues or or how to come to the ultimate conclusion. That's something that they went into in conference right after they left us. Uh, We're hopeful that we're going to get a majority of the court to agree with us and to pause these mandates. I know that we have received so many, out, so much outpouring from people across the country. All day today, I got Texas saying, we're praying for you. Please, look, we're praying for you. My pastor and I, my priest and I are praying for you. And I think that speaks volumes to, to the anxiety that is amongst the American population right now in that they want to make their own health care choices. They don't want the government telling them what to do with their health care. Now, I want to talk about some of the arguments that were made, both by the attorneys as well as the, the justices. And during the hearing, Justice Kagan had this to say when justifying the mandate on health care workers, when appearing to argue uh, to justify the, the mandate on health care workers. I'll play this for you and then get your response. All the secretary saying- is doing here is to say to providers you know what, like, basically the, the one thing you can't do is to kill your patients. So you have, to get, you have to get vaccinated so that you're not transmitting the disease that can kill elderly Medicare patients, that can kill sick Medicaid patients. Do you think that's a fair characterization of the mandate on healthcare workers, that it is merely an attempt by the federal government to tell healthcare workers you can't kill your patients? (laughs) No, you know, it is disappointing to see some of the justices question or make statements that were more 
political in nature rather than legal in nature. And I think that when the court does that, they open themselves up to political criticism as well. Uh, you know, I would I would tell you that I think at one point in time, I don't remember if it was Justice Sotomayor or Justice Kagan, I think it was Justice Sotomayor who said that we had 100,000 kids on ventilators in the country right now, which we know is factually inaccurate. Uh, and, and so there was some exaggeration, I believe, in factual, in facts that were put out by the justices. And I think that becomes dangerous when they engage in that type of um, of identity or, or, or um, fact-baiting, I would call that, um, in, in the arguments. I think that this argument should have been about the basic structure of our Constitution. And does the federal government, does an agency get the ability to, to dictate medical procedures to American citizens? Who do you think should be making these decisions? I think individuals should be able to make this decision. I mean, look, let's talk about where we are in this country with this with this disease, with this virus. I don't know anyone who is struggling to get vaccinated, who wants to get vaccinated and is struggling to get vaccinated. Vaccines are available to everyone who wants to take them free of charge. We know that people who who get vaccinated once, twice, three times have the ability to get infected. And when they get infected, they can reinfect other people as well. I'm not against vaccines. I think that that's a decision each individual should make with consultation with their medical doctor, right? And, and so, again, when we, when we talk about it in that context, we start to scratch our heads and say, now, what country are we actually living in where the government is now going to stand in between you and your doctor? Oh, and by the way, if you don't do what the government says, you're going to lose your job. I want to raise attention to another argument that was made, and this was actually more of a comment by Justice Sotomayor, and this was worth, I think, discussing the analogy that she made here. Let's play this clip and let you respond. So what's the difference between this and telling employers where sparks are flying in the workplace, your workers have to be, wear a mask? When sparks are flying in the workplace, that's presumably because there's a machine that's unique to that workplace. That is the... Why is the human being not like a machine if it's spewing a virus, blood-borne viruses? What's your reaction to the idea that uh, the court would see human beings at work as a machine that is spewing a virus? Again, those kind of comments are certainly disappointing to hear from a justice because they, they, they tend to be more politically motivated or ideology motivated rather than legally based, right? I mean, I thought it was a good question at first, um, and then the follow-up just seemed to kind of um, take us where we didn't need to go. There's a difference. If I ask you to wear your mask in the workplace, you can leave your mask at the doorstep, but you can't leave your vaccine at the doorstep. And I think that that's a fair ana analogy of where we are. Uh, this is an invasive medical procedure that the government is trying to force on American citizens who don't want to take the vaccine. Yeah. You know, your comment about political arguments being made during 
the uh, legal arguments today is a good one because that actually was one of my observations after nearly a couple hours. It struck me how similar the arguments made between the attorneys and the justices were to the arguments I read on social media and hear debated on network news. Do you think that's an unfair oversimplification of what happened today? Uh, I mean, I think that you could you could bring some analogy into that. I think or some comparison to that. Uh, I, again, I think that the, the the root question here is: Does the Constitution allow Congress to delegate, and have they delegated the power to force Americans to receive medical procedures by an administrative agency or by the executive department? And can we coerce those American citizens with the loss of their livelihoods and that being their jobs in order to achieve that goal? And then again, is that is that goal necessary for the common good here? And and as we see the virus develop and as we see different um, treatments uh, become available and whether or not a vaccine works against Omicron or works better against Delta. Do we really need to be in this one size fits all the vaccines and a panacea General to getting Landry, us out of it? In about 15 seconds, what's the court going to do? I don't know. We're going to see and hopefully they'll do it soon. Hopefully they will. Thank you so much for your time today and thank you so much uh, for your efforts as well. God bless. Thank you. We will continue to follow this, uh, hopefully soon. Uh, typically, the court takes months. They're not going to take months in this case. It may not be Monday, but it could be. And we'll let you know when we know. Coming up, some great news coming up out of Europe, where a legal attempt to force Christian business owners to promote views they don't share was rejected. We'll talk about it right after the break. Stay with us. Are you struggling to spend consistent time in God's Word? Then join Family Research Council on an exciting journey through the Bible. FRC's two-year Bible reading plan helps you to approach daily Bible reading with an intentional focus of diving deeper into the nature of God and how His Word speaks into cultural issues. By studying the Bible, we can see the grandeur of God unfold throughout the past. The Stand on the Word reading plan takes you through daily scripture in an engaging manner to help you stay grounded in God's truth. All wisdom comes from God, and He has given us the Bible as a way to understand the world. Start this adventure today with Family Research Council. When you sign up, we'll text you every Sunday with daily passages and questions that help prepare you for conversations with your friends and family. To begin this journey, visit frc.org Bible. With the current division and confusion of our culture, it is so important for Christians to root ourselves in the truth of God's Word so that we are prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have. For this purpose, Family Research Council launched the Center for Biblical Worldview. The Center applies the Bible and the historical teachings of the Church to current issues. This helps Christians understand and live by a biblical worldview, know why Scripture must be authoritative, and equips believers to advance and defend the faith in workplaces, schools, communities, and the public square. The experts at the center address and provide resources on issues like religious liberty, abortion, voting, marriage, and sexuality. 
To access free resources like the Biblical Worldview series, go to frc.org worldview. To get highlights of the latest work of the Worldview Fellows, including blogs, interviews, and publications, sign up at frc.org subscriptions. At Family Research Council, it is important to us that we stay connected with you and that you stay informed. With the increase in tech censorship of conservatives and Christians, we've decided to be proactive to make sure we don't go completely dark due to censorship. That is why we've created a tech subscription platform. If we get canceled, you can stay informed and still find updates on faith, family, and freedom. How? Just text STAND to 67742 to sign up for our text alerts, and you will get FRC's content straight to your phone. Again, just text STAND to 67742, and you will get special alerts on the biggest stories of the day. You can stay informed with just a simple text. We want you to be able to stay connected with like-minded community and to always have access to our content. Stay connected and informed. Just text STAND to 67742. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph back home in for Tony today. Glad to be with you. Yesterday, the European Court of Human Rights rejected an attempt to overturn a UK Supreme Court ruling that unanimously sided with two Christian business owners in Northern Ireland who were sued for declining to create a cake with the words support gay marriage on it. The decision is good news for not just the bakers, but also for people across Europe. And my next guest will explain why. And joining me is Simon Calvert. He's the Deputy Director for Public Affairs at the UK-based Christian Institute, which argued against the repeal to the European Court of Human Rights. And he has stayed up late to be with us. Simon, welcome to Washington Watch. Uh, It's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having me. Well, we are glad to have you. Now, this case goes all the way back to 2014. Why is it just now getting to the European Court of Human Rights? Yeah, so back in 2014, uh, Gareth Lee walked into a a bakery and asked them to produce a cake with this uh, message on it saying support gay marriage. The Christian owners uh, of this small family bakery could not do that in good conscience. And... uh, um, Mr. Lee went elsewhere and got his cake, but he still sued them. And uh, the Taxpayer Funded Equality Commission helped him to do that. So uh, we were helping the family from the very beginning. Uh, The Christian Institute, uh, our supporters generously uh, fund us to enable us to uh, support cases like this. Uh, But uh, yeah, it's been a seven, eight year battle um, uh, with the family lost uh, in in court in the first instance and the second instance. But we helped them to appeal to the UK Supreme Court. And what the UK Supreme Court said in 2018 was this was not a case of discriminating against Gareth Lee for being a gay man. It was not that. It was simply that he was asking the Christian bakers to help him promote their particular campaign, their political views, their message. And that message went directly contrary to their own. And the Supreme Court says nobody should be forced to do that, whether you are a Christian baker, uh, asked to bake a pro-gay marriage cake, or whether you are a gay baker, asked to bake an anti-gay marriage cake. And At that time, October 2018, when that ruling came down, it was widely welcomed from across the political spectrum, the philosophical spectrum. Gay rights groups uh, and gay rights campaigners welcomed the ruling because they knew it works both ways. So it was disappointing then that uh, lawyers for Mr. Lee decided to try and uh, appeal 
uh, to the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg. And the wheels turn very slowly in the Strasbourg court. Uh, and so this judgment has only just been handed down in the last, uh, in the last uh, couple of days. But uh, it was the right judgment. They've uh, let the UK Supreme Court judgment stand and they have not taken uh, up uh, Mr Lee's appeal. So that's good news. Do you see this decision as the end of the matter? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, in the end, it wasn't even close. The, the, the excuse me, the Strasbourg court, um, they uh, ruled that Mr Lee's appeal wasn't even admissible. Uh, they didn't even hold a hearing on it. Uh, they said that it was doubtful that his human rights were engaged at all, uh, based on the facts uh, that uh, were presented. Uh, and that in any event, he'd never argued uh, these kind of uh, spurious human rights arguments uh, that he was raising with Strasbourg at any of the three previous uh, hearings in the UK domestic courts. So, um, yeah, so that's that's final. Uh, that's the end of that that action. And, uh, you know, there's no possibility. So thankfully, uh, the Christian family, the MacArthur family who own and run Ashes Baking Company in Northern Ireland, they can just get on with doing what they do best, which is uh, baking some really nice cakes. Well, and it is such a common sense argument that unfortunately there are several jurisdictions here in the states that have rejected that common sense argument. And we have this patchwork where some states have non-discrimination laws that would require someone to bake a cake like this and have attempted to do so. Uh, many states uh, give business owners the freedom to choose what messages they want to communicate, what events they want to participate in. Is that patchwork legal system what exists in Europe as well? So um, it, it Yes, is the short answer. Uh, yes, I mean, I am really only familiar um, in detail, of course, with the laws uh, that apply here in the UK. Um, but uh, yeah, you do have uh, different systems uh, across uh, the uh, across Europe, and uh, the European Court of Human Rights um, is much wider than the European Union. It extends to and even includes uh, Russia. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, you will you will have uh, different approaches in different nation yeah. states. Um, I'm not aware of a, a case exactly like this. I mean, what's you know, the thing about this case was it it was a, a quite a unique set of facts, and uh, in, and in that sense, quite a narrow application. Um, but you know, the principle that the UK Supreme Court uh, um, ruled on that nobody should be um, forced to express a view with which they profoundly disagree. That, of course, is an expression of the principle of compelled speech, which is uh, a very familiar concept uh, in, the, in the US Supreme Court. And um, it was, um, I mean, one of the reasons why we were so excited about the win in the UK Supreme Court was to be able to uh, help to develop here in the UK this principle of compelled speech. And so the UK Supreme Court ruling um, whilst, of course, not binding on any other nation state, is uh, is a persuasive precedent, and uh, you know can and I'm sure is being cited in other jurisdictions across Europe and beyond. Everyone can think of a message they would not want to communicate at the force of the state's power, which is why this decision exactly. really does benefit everyone. Whatever you think about exactly. anything, there's something you don't want to say and should not be made to say it. And I think it, that is the principle here. Was the decision a surprise? Um, the decision from the Strasbourg court, no, uh, because it, it never looked strong. I mean, you can never... Uh, predict entirely any court can you and um but it, it didn't look like a strong appeal and um 
and as I say, in the end, it really fell at the first hurdle and it, and it wasn't even close. But, you know, to pick up on your point, as you say, whoever you are, whatever you believe, you can imagine a situation where you might be asked to help promote a cause with which, with which you profoundly disagree. I mean, we talked about, um, I think I've already mentioned, you know, a, a gay baker. Why, why should a gay baker be forced to produce a cake which says that gay marriage is an abomination? Why should a Muslim printer be forced to print cartoons of Muhammad? You know, these are things which are profoundly offensive to their individual conscience. And conscience is important. And if you have strong beliefs, whatever they are, uh, it's important that you're not forced to, to go against their beliefs. And, and, you know, the UK Supreme Court put that principle very strongly. And, um, yeah, we always had the hope that um, that uh, the Strasbourg Court would you know, would have to recognise the um, the margin of appreciation, as it's called, right. uh, of, the, of the domestic courts here. But, you know, you also hope that they would recognise the strength of the quality of the ruling in Simon Calvert. Sadly, we are out of time. Thank you for the work you and the Christian Institute do. And thank you for staying up so late to update us on this. See you soon. Absolute pleasure. Now, coming up, there are so many signs the American public is not interested in what the White House is selling. We'll talk about it. What is religious liberty and why should you care about it? Simply put, religious liberty is the freedom to choose your religious beliefs and to live according to those beliefs. Why should we care about this freedom? At Family Research Council, we care about religious freedom because we believe that it is an inherent human right that all governments have an obligation to protect. Tragically, not all governments do. Religious persecution is a tragic reality around the world that is not often acknowledged by the media, even though attacks on people of all faiths continue to increase globally. In Scripture, God calls Christians to pray and care for the persecuted church, the downtrodden, and those who cannot help themselves. Therefore, we must be advocates for those persecuted for their faith. To access Family Research Council's latest resources and to learn more about religious freedom and what you can do to help the persecuted, go to frc.org slash religious liberty. Do you want to be able to stay up to date on conservative news? Are you looking for Christian resources to help you stay politically engaged? Then download Family Research Council's Stand Firm app. With all of our content available at your fingertips, you will conveniently be able to stay up to date throughout your busy day. The Stand Firm app will give you access to a variety of resources, such as our most recent episodes of Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, tweets, and other social media posts, and our latest blogs, updates, and publications. Additionally, you will have the opportunity to take action and make your voice heard by contacting your elected officials on the issues that most concern you. Visit the App Store on your smartphone or mobile device and search Stand Firm to download Family Research Council's official Stand Firm app. Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, City. Glad that you are with us. It's the beginning of the new year, and if you have not already started your Bible reading plan, you need to. Hope it was your New Year's resolution. If it isn't, join us now. It's not too late. 
everyone at FRC, including yours truly, and including your favorite host, Tony Perkins, is on this Bible reading plan and all the staff at FRC. You can join us by going to frc.org slash Bible. We're through Genesis 19 as of today. You can catch up quickly and be with us through this entire journey through the Bible. You'll be thankful that you did. Now, a new national survey by Rasmussen Report found that only 28% of likely U.S. voters believe it's likely that President Biden will be reelected if he seeks another term in 2024. That's not surprising, considering how his approval ratings continue to reach record lows as his administration struggles with crisis after crisis. Meanwhile, Senator Joe Manchin, in many ways President Biden's nemesis in the Senate, his approval rating went from 52% to 59% after he opposed President, uh, President Biden's build, big, build Government Bigger plan, his big Build Back Better plan, last month. According to a Save America Coalition survey, again, uh, Senator Manchin's approval rating in West Virginia from 52% to 59%. But congressional Democrats are still doing everything they can to get their agenda through Congress. And Senate leader Chuck Schumer leading that effort next week plans to take move forward his effort to get rid of the filibuster. Is it going to work? Does that mean they are not hearing what the public thinks about the legislative proposals moving forward? Joining me now to talk about this it. Is Connor, I, no, okay. Well, in just a moment, our guest is going to be here to talk about this. But the issue that we have today, and this is not all the data that suggests President Biden is going to have a really tough time. Mention the fact that only 28% of Americans believe that President Biden is going to be reelected, is likely to be reelected in 2024 if he runs. Shockingly, 21% think he'll resign before the end of his first term. Those are shockingly similar numbers if you are the White House. And if he has lost the support of the public to that degree already, what does this mean for him moving forward? Is it, Because he seems, last week we saw that the end of the Build Back Better plan, as he refers to it, seems to have arrived when Senator Manchin said he was not going to support Build Back Better in the Senate. But President Biden continues to move forward, even immediately after that, assuring the public that he was going to get something done with Senator Manchin. But now we see the results of this, both for President Biden and for Senator Manchin, and it appears that the public is much more with Senator Manchin than they are with President Biden. Does this mean that President Biden is going to give up his legislative goals? Right now, the answer to that is no, but we're always dealing with a political reality where you can only get done what the public will tolerate, and you're not going to get political action from politicians who don't believe their constituents are going to support this. We saw more evidence of this in a Real Clear Politics article from today. And they highlighted the fact that there are several Democratic congressional 
candidates who are not talking about Build Back Better. They scoured their social media feed. They scoured their issue pages on their websites and discovered that in these swing districts, Democrat candidates are silent on the Build Back Better plan. Now, of course, because they are trying to sell their constituents what they think their constituents wants, want, that would not be the case if these candidates felt that they were ready. And I think, do we have him with us now? Okay. Now, joining me now to discuss all of this is Connor Semmelsberger. He's our Director of Federal Affairs for Life and Human Dignity here at FRC. Connor, welcome to the show. Glad to be on with you, Joseph. Well, glad to have you. I don't know if you were able to hear any of that, but I was my big run-up to why I think um, President Biden's going to have a hard time. And we talked about some of the poll results that showed uh, only 28% of Americans think he's going to be reelected. 21% think he's going to be, he's going to resign. What does this mean for his legislative priorities moving forward? Yeah, it does not look good. You know, uh, history tells us that once an incumbent president faces a midterm election, usually his party's going to lose seats. But boy, all those signs you just pointed to looks like uh, the Democrats here in Congress are going to might set records um, on on the seats they may be losing. It's not looking good for the legislative agenda this year and definitely not come midterms this November. How are is this an issue of President Biden losing momentum or is he losing congressional support on his agenda? I think it's a little of both. You know, the, this this Congress came in acting like they had uh, FDR type uh, uh, majorities, but actually they did not. So it's a mix of both. And it's going to be a tough slogging uh, on the Hill and for President Biden to continue his agenda in the months ahead. Well, Connor, I think you can hear that. Can you stay with us over the break? I know we got to you late. We'd love to continue this conversation. There's more to talk about. Can you stay with us after the break? Yes, can do, Joseph. Okay, we look forward to doing that. And we want to, we're going to get into with Connor when we come back what it looks like not only for 2022, uh, but also now until 2024, congressionally, politically. We're going to continue that conversation with Connor Semmelsberger when we come back. Stay with us here on Washington Watch. Do you want to be able to stay up to date on conservative news? Are you looking for Christian resources to help you stay politically engaged? Then download Family Research Council's Stand Firm app. With all of our content available at your fingertips, you will conveniently be able to stay up to date throughout your busy day. The Stand Firm app will give you access to a variety of resources, such as our most recent episodes of Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, tweets and other social media posts, and our latest blogs, updates, and publications. Additionally, you will have the opportunity to take action and make your voice heard by contacting your elected officials on the issues that most concern you. Visit the App Store on your smartphone or mobile device and search Stand Firm to download Family Research Council's official Stand Firm app. What is religious liberty and why should you care about it? Simply put, religious liberty is the freedom to choose your religious beliefs and to live according to those beliefs. Why should we care about this freedom? At Family Research Council, we care about religious freedom because we believe that it is an inherent human right that all governments have an obligation to protect. 
Tragically, not all governments do. Religious persecution is a tragic reality around the world that is not often acknowledged by the media, even though attacks on people of all faiths continue to increase globally. In Scripture, God calls Christians to pray and care for the persecuted church, the downtrodden, and those who cannot help themselves. Therefore, we must be advocates for those persecuted for their faith. To access Family Research Council's latest resources and to learn more about religious freedom and what you can do to help the persecuted, go to frc.org slash religious liberty. Attention university students. Are you looking for an internship that will help you grow as a Christian leader and allow you to positively influence the culture? Then Family Research Council's internship program is for you. FRC's life-changing 12 to 15 week internship program will prepare and equip you for the next step in your professional journey. You'll enjoy a speaker series focusing on careers and callings, lectures from prominent conservative leaders, and weekly biblical worldview training. All of these offerings were created to aid you in your personal and professional development. As an intern, you will have the opportunity to work side-by-side with our experts in policy, communications, event planning, and more. The real-world experience you gain will prepare you to pursue a career of influence and make a difference wherever God calls you. This paid internship offers fully funded housing in the heart of downtown D.C., giving you the chance to experience our nation's capital. Visit frc.org slash internships to apply. Back to Washington Watch. My name is just back home sitting in for Tony today. We're having a conversation with Connor Semmelsberger about the first year of the Biden administration, acknowledging the poor approval ratings that he has. Recent polling from Rasmussen uh, telling us that only 28% of the public thinks he is likely to be reelected in 2024 if he runs 21% expect him to resign before his term is over. To talk about all of it more is Connor Semmelsberger. I think by video now, Connor, we have you. Yeah, good to see you now, Jessica. It's the wonders of technology. I always blame all of this stuff on Jeff Zuckerberger because he's always trying to get in the way of our communications, isn't he? Right. Now, um, set up set it up a little bit in the last segment about the, just the realities, the political rea- realities of this. What's this going to mean for the midterms in 2022? Yeah, I mean, it's not looking good. You know, we are in a snapshot of time. It's January. November's a ways away, and there's going to be a lot happen politically, culturally in the months ahead. But boy, it doesn't look good. We know incumbent presidents generally uh, historically will lose seats of their party in in the chambers of Congress. Um, Biden's looking to maybe set some records uh, in losing seats just the way the congressional redistricting is going. But when you look at the policies, when his own members on the Hill aren't even willing to back his uh, failed or even past policies, it's not a good sign for the Democratic agenda in the days ahead. Yeah, and we mentioned in the last segment, I mentioned that there are congressional Democrats, and there's, again, a Real Clear Politics article about this today, looking at Democratic congressional candidates around the country who aren't even mentioning Build Back Better in their issue statements, and in some cases have refused to ask answer questions about it from the press, which I think is all you need to know about their perception of what the public thinks about it. The, the data has been very clear that the public is not excited about what the economy is doing right now, does not give Biden high marks on that, and therefore Build Back Better has not received high marks from the public as well. 
That being said, it does not seem to have discouraged everyone in Washington, D.C. Chuck Schumer has said that next week he's going to take a vote to try to eliminate the filibuster in the Senate. Do you think that's going to happen? It's unlikely. You know, Chuck Schumer, one thing that uh, people forget is uh, uh, the majority leader of the Senate is actually running for re-election. So he's not only trying to maintain his 50-50 Senate and appease yeah. the Biden administration, but he's he's got to run in New York as well. Not so much uh, considering losing to a conservative, but fearful of maybe a primary challenge from even more radical uh, members of his party in New York. So that's what he's facing. But yeah, this next week, uh, you can see this as a pivot, right? They tried to get Build Back Better through. They tried to convince themselves and the American public that it was a popular policy when all signs were pointing against it. They thought they could live in a fictitious world where everybody loved it, but that just wasn't true. So here they're pivoting and they have one option left. They have to get uh, uh, the filibuster gone. It's standing in their way, 60 vote threshold to get bills through. That's their sort of pie in the sky dream now that the, the, the bulk of their agenda has already failed. Uh, it's their last ditch effort to really put that thumb down on Senator Manchin of West Virginia and Senator Sinema from Arizona who have been skeptical to make these uh, historic changes in the Senate. You mentioned Senator Manchin and recent polling showing his approval rating in his home state of West Virginia going from 52 percent to 59 percent after he very publicly uh, killed Build Back Better in Congress. Do you think there's any chance he moves off of his position now that it's showing it's actually quite popular in his home state? Yeah, it'd be pretty tough for him to do that. You know, he just got uh, some validation that what his position is and has been for a long time now is actually popular with his home state. And that's really what matters. He's a senator representing the state of West Virginia. He's not representing New York City and California and, and the policy Schumer might want to propose. And so I think that's going to be a boost to his position. You keep seeing the jobs numbers and the inflation numbers uh, going up even more, gas prices, et cetera. Uh, it only strengthens, I think, Senator Manchin's hands. It makes it a lot tougher sell for Senator Schumer and Biden to uh, force through this very, very unpopular bill. So, Connor, we have this situation where uh, senators, Chuck Schumer, or I'm, I'm sorry, um, Joe Manchin specifically, is, is becoming more popular by opposing President Biden's agenda. You have congressional Democratic candidates who are publicly refusing to support President Biden's congressional uh, agenda. Is President Biden already a lame duck president? Boy, in D.C. these days, it feels that way. Now, you know, and I think what makes it so is because they ran on a platform and they came in as if they had, like I said, FDR type majorities, New Deal type majorities, when in reality they had a 50-50 Senate and barely a five vote uh, uh, majority in the House. And so they tried to act like they could pass through all those progressive priorities that only a small subset of their party actually want, but they made it the entirety of their platform. And so, boy, the failure seems even more monumental than had they just come in and say, we're going to you know, pass things that the majority of Americans want and maybe something like infrastructure, if that's what they ran on, boy, it might have looked like a success. But when you look at uh, where they said they could be at this time and where they actually are, um, yeah. it's, it's very far away. And it feels like already only a year in, Joe Biden feels like a lame duck president. Well, I will say in three years, 
that's an eternity in politics. You mentioned that one year is a long time in politics, which it is. Three years is even longer, and I would be very reluctant to predict what the next three years is going to bring us because I never would have guessed what the last three years has brought us. So I would say in politics, it's true that nothing is ever over. So we will see. But a snapshot right now, uh, it looks like it's a challenge moving forward for President Biden and Connor Semmelsberger. We appreciate you updating on us uh, today about it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Joseph. Now, coming up, uh, we, I want to play this clip at the top of the program. I'm going to play it again because it's from the oral arguments that we heard from the Supreme Court about the Biden administration's shots or test requirement for large businesses. This is going to set up our worldview conversation with David Clausen. So let's go ahead and play that. Our nation's businesses have distributed and administered hundreds of millions of COVID vaccines to Americans. Businesses have encouraged and incentivized their employees to get vaccines. But a single federal agency tasked with occupational standards cannot commandeer businesses economy-wide into becoming de facto public health agencies. That's a legal argument being made in front of the Supreme Court today. Of course, as Christians, we don't merely think in legal terms though those are important. We have to think in biblical terms. And we know that just because something is legal doesn't make it biblical. And just because something is biblical doesn't make it legal. Where is our ultimate alliance? How do we know what the right decision is in each case? With us to discuss that critical question is David Clausen, who's the director of the Center for Biblical Worldview at Family Research Council. David, good to see you. Hey, great to see you, and Happy New Year. First time we've been on the show this year. Good to see you, Joseph. Well, Happy New Year to you, and I, I want to get right into this because we, we are a little short on time, and this is deep and wide, but what was your response to the, the Supreme Court's arguments today? I don't even know if you had a chance to hear those. You might be, uh, I think you are actually traveling, but th this whole question of if the government tells us we have to do something, are we obligated to do it? What's your reaction to that? Yeah, I was able to follow a little bit. I was traveling and still getting over sickness. Uh, but th the question is so important. It's one that we've been covering extensively, Joseph, over the last couple of months, uh, especially with this whole vaccine mandate, vaccine passports. And let me just say one, two quick things. Number one, uh, first and foremost, because uh, a lot of people misrepresent Christians when we talk about this, uh, Christians do believe that uh, the government is a good thing. Romans 13, uh, we've talked about that a lot. It's instituted. Uh, we're supposed to submit ourselves to the governing authorities. However, like all authorities, that has its limitations. And when the government steps beyond those limitations, Joseph, uh, that's when these questions come up. And the one verse that you and I have talked about before, it's in the book of Romans uh, chapter 14, where it says, you know, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And so one of the big issues that I've had from the beginning with these mandates is the government telling people to do something that violates their sincerely held beliefs and their conscience rights. And I think that is a huge deal. And I'm really glad that this issue has now has gone all the way up to the Supreme Court where this can be adjudicated. What are the limits on the principle that Christians should obey the law? Because I'll, I'll ask it this way. I'll start with this. Do Christians only have to obey laws they like? No, no, not at all, Joseph. I have, no, we, and you and I have never argued that. 
No, no, I agree. I, I agree with you, but why not? Why do we have to obey some laws even if we don't like them? Yeah, we have to obey laws even if we don't like them because, you know, we, we, we are people under authority. We're, we are people under uh, the, the authorities that God has ordained, uh, just as those of us who are members of local churches were under the authority of our pastors. You know, our pastors might, you know, make a decision that we're not 100% on board with, but because that we're under that authority, uh, we are going to submit to it. The same goes true with government. However, a major uh, biblical uh, rule here is that the government can never compel us to sin. Uh, this is in the book of Acts, where the disciples are told that they can't preach anymore. And what do they say? We must obey God rather than man. So there are, are limits. Government's authority right. uh, can only go so far. Are vaccines sinful? I don't think vaccines are sinful. In fact, I've encouraged, you know, vulnerable, immunocompromised folks in my own family to get the vaccine. Yeah. Well, given that, if if the rule is you obey the law, but the law can't make you sin, but vaccines aren't sinful, what's then the argument for any Christian to say, then I don't have to get the vaccine, even though the law tells me I have to? Yeah, absolutely. We've written about this. You can see it at frc.org slash worldview. But the issue that I've argued, Joseph, is a conscience issue. For some people, uh, it, their, their, their conscience does not allow them to get this. They, they think it's uh, one issue that I've talked to. I've talked to uh, some nurses in Virginia, nurses in Tennessee, uh, that because there is a remote complicity with abortion, uh, that uh, some of the vaccines and the testing phases or in the production phases used aborted stem cells that, that derive from aborted uh, fetuses, uh, that they felt that it was morally impermissible for them to use uh, to, to use a vaccine. Uh, I might not share that view, but why would I, to the point that you opened the show up with the situation uh, in Northern Ireland, you know, we shouldn't be forcing anyone to do something that they truly believe would be causing them to sin. Now, that's a really big deal for those of us who are Christians. Well, there's another layer to this I want to I wanna get to, I think, because I think there's an element of jurisdictional authority that is important. Because let's imagine that the government had told us, you have to take your daily dose of vitamin D and vitamin C, and you need to run five miles every day, and you have to make sure you never have more than 10 grams of sugar in any given day. Now, I would argue that all of those things are good for you. If the government ordered those things, would we be morally obligated to obey those laws? I don't think so, actually. We've had this discussion. I know good many people might disagree with us because I think that would be the government stepping outside of the boundaries that it, Romans 13 has assigned right. to it. In the same way, if your pastor told you that every Saturday afternoon you had to wash his car, I don't think we would need to follow that uh, because I think he'd be uh, abusing his authority, stepping outside the authority that uh, Scripture has clearly uh, delegated to him. So this this question of jurisdictional authority very, very important in this conversation. I think that's I think that's right. And let's think about the spheres that God created, because He created government, He created the family, and He created the church, and He created them each with their own jurisdictions. And the problem that we have, and, and all authority on heaven and earth has been given unto me, Jesus, and he delegates that authority in these institutions that he created. Parents have authority that the government doesn't have. And the government has authority that a pastor doesn't have. And what I think it's important for Christians to recognize is the proper use of authority 
is staying within the jurisdiction that God gave to that sphere. You know, parents, there are things that parents can't do that the government can do. There are things that parents can do that a pastor can't do. And when we each recognize the the appropriate jurisdiction of the sphere we operate in, it works better. So to me, and, and I want to go through some hypotheticals. I'm a lawyer, so this is kind of what we do in law school, but I want to t- tease some of this out, and I think it's very practical in some ways. David, are Christians obligated to wear masks if there's a mask mandate? I think it would depend on the situation, obviously, but I think, by and large, Christians defer to the government. Yeah. Uh, I think there could be some— It's case- not sinful, right? No, no, not at all. If if the if a jurisdiction said you now must wear a mask forever, there's no limits to this. Anytime you're in public, doesn't matter if there's a pandemic, it's always more safe. You must always wear a mask. Would a Christian be obligated to uh, abide by that forever? I don't think so, Joseph. And I would agree with you. And I think the reason is why is that jurisdictional limit? I think there are good arguments in an actual emergency, and we could have you know we could have. Uh, a, a robust debate about what point, how long does an emergency extend? Is it for the first two weeks, six weeks, two months, two years, two decades? What's an actual emergency, right? And I think that's part of the, one of the things that we're working out right now. But I think we should be comfortable with the idea that an emergency is temporary. And so what you could be required appropriately to do for a period of time, you could not be required to do uh, forever. We've already discussed um, getting a vaccine. Do you have to? But another question that was at the Supreme Court today, can you force someone else as an employer to get a vaccine? Yeah, that's the question that we heard the justices debate today. And I think that there's good conscience, uh, uh, religious-based objections uh, that the justices are going to have to think about that I don't think they can force them. Uh, to do that. I think that does violate some really important rights that we've always acknowledged in this country. Right. But I hope this conversation has given some folks a framework, a little bit, uh, a few more tools to process all of this through, because sadly, the conversation is likely not over. But David Clausen, we appreciate your time in helping make it easier. Thanks for being with us. Thank you, Joseph. That's the show we have for today, folks. We hope this has blessed you, that it's been a good use of your time, that you have learned how to think a bit more biblically about everything. And remember, whatever you do, fear God and nothing else. We'll see you next time here on Washington Watch. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.